0: A long time ago, on a spinner rack, far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel-licensed sci-fi and fantasy. Cover date, February 1978. Star Wars number 8, Godzilla number 7, Human Fly number 6, Man from Atlantis number 1, Marvel Classics Comics number 31, First Man on the Moon, and John Carter, Warlord of Mars number 9. Hello, and welcome back to the comic book time machine. I'm Ben, Ben Avery, comic book fan, comic book reader, comic book collector, and comic book writer. And I am here, well, to read comic books and to discuss comic books. And so we are going to go back in time to November of 1977. And pick up some comic books off the spinner rack at our local 7-Eleven or, well, as it was for me, the local stop shop. And it was spelled with uh, two P's and an E on both words, so stoppy, shoppy. And we are going to see what's on the shelf that Marvel is publishing that is part of their uh, you know licensed science fiction books. And it's a heavy month this month, a very heavy. Very heavy month this month. We have a 60 cent comic book called Marvel Classics Comics. First Men on the Moon promises 52 full pages with no ads. We have another book that's a dollar. A dollar. Man from Atlantis, number One. It is a giant size bonus issue. First time in comics. It promises underwater action. I see a killer whale about to eat a lady. I see a guy with webbed fingers and a yellow Speedo who's swimming, and also he's in the background there fighting a bug eyed underwater guy. Yes, one full dollar. (laughs) And uh it is not promising no ads. In fact, there are plenty of ads, but there are also articles and pinups and stuff like that. I'm excited about this one. This is a short run. I know that. I don't know how many issues. I can't remember how many I bought when I was lining up these uh my, my reading order here. But uh this was a nice surprise when I opened the bag last episode. And then uh the human fly. 35 cents star wars another 35 cent book godzilla another 35 cent book so we're up to a dollar five there with those three books plus john carter and that puts us up to what a dollar five a dollar 40 now so a dollar 40 two dollars and 40 cents plus that's we're talking three dollars worth of comics here did i miss anything i don't know I don't think I did, but we're talking three dollars worth here. Uh, We're talking about (laughs) just a lot, uh, a lot of stuff. We've got something based on a novel, something based on a TV show, something based on movie, something based on an actual real life stuntman. And I think I have spent enough time talking about that and kind of, you know, we just have so much to do. We're just going to jump into it right now, starting with Star Wars. Issue eight, the second issue passed the movie adaptation. Okay. I've got to say now, what happened? Did I miss something? What in the world is going on here? Uh, I feel like, you know, I'm I, in my, my, uh, star Wars omnibus. I'm just turning the page over and, uh, You know, there's the last panel of the previous issue, and then there's the cover for issue eight, which says Star Wars, at last, beyond the movie, beyond the galaxy, that promise, you know. It says uh, eight against a world, and there's indeed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight characters on the cover. Two of them are Han Solo and uh, what looks to be Chewbacca, Um, and then it also says extra in this issue, the deadly mission of Luke Skywalker, so they're promising us two things, eight against a world and the deadly mission of Luke Skywalker. But, uh, then I start into the issue and the art is completely different. It's a completely different style. The characters are not matching. Uh, it's just, I, I feel like I've missed, you know, like a handful of issues or like, I, I I mean, you know, last issue was issue one of one story arc, and this is issue two of a different, completely different story arc. It's just it's just weird. Now, issue number seven was uh, the artist is Howard Chaykin and the co-plotter. And then it's Frank uh, Springer, who's the embellisher. Which is, you know, typically would be the inker, but based on what I know about how things were working with Chaykin, um, I'm wondering if there's a lot more than inking going on here. Uh, because then this issue here is, again, Roy Thomas is the writer-editor. Howard Chaykin is the artist and co-plotter. And then Tom Palmer is embellisher in residence with uh, Tom Palmer also being the colorist. And then Jay Costanza is the letterer. And Archie Goodwin is the consulting editor, but I, I'm looking at this and I'm just thinking, the the here's the the most jarring thing: uh, the characters in the last panel of the last issue are wearing these green robes type of thing that um, looks like they're wearing maybe bathrobes or something. I don't know, but you know, that past their knees, and then in the next page, you know, Tom Palmer did the colors for. This issue, he did not, I guess, no, it was Carl Gafford who did the colors for the last issue. It's like you had these just two different people. Obviously, well, it's not like two different people. It's obviously two different people, but they didn't there, – there was no connection there because the, the guys, the three guys who were standing there who were from last issue who were asking for Han Solo's help and had a proposition for him – they look completely different. They are different characters altogether. They are wearing different clothing. They are wearing different colored clothing. It's not even like they said, okay, well, they're going to wear a different tunic, but we're going to make the tunic. Uh, we're going to keep the tunic green anyway. And, and then there's this other character who just kind of comes out of nowhere. Who's attacking Han Solo from behind. And it's, it's jarring. If you are reading this back to back, it's jarring. If you know, if I was buying this off the stand, which you know, I'm obviously I'm going back in time to get this now, so it, it's a different thing. But uh, you know, looking back in time. But if you were buying it th- off the off the stand, you bought the last issue, you bought this next issue, you sit down to read issue number eight, you're probably going to flip back at issue number seven to see you want to remind yourself of where you left off. And it's it's like I said, it's a jarring jarring difference in art style and in character design. It is weird, and there's some oh, there's some very weird art choices in here too. One of those weird art choices is that some of the characters are drawn fairly realistically. And Chewbacca, actually, on the cover, it's not very good. But and I, I didn't look up who to see who did the cover, but uh, in the actual artwork here, the by by Chaykin and, and Palmer, Chewbacca looks pretty good. And you know, Darth Vader, who's hard to draw, uh, he's in one panel of this, but he looks fairly decent. Uh, he, it's just, there's just some weird art choices with the, the panel layouts and the, those characters, most of the characters look fairly realistic, but then the, the main villain, he looks like a complete joke. He, the way he's drawn in the, in the, the first time you see him, it's, it feels like a caricature. It feels like a, a complete caricature with a weird, um, oh, what's it called? Foreshortening with his. Legs, and it's just a very odd book here with the art. Um, the writing itself also has some odd stuff, and I'm kind of giving away my feelings about this, but you know, this is based on the Magnificent Seven. This is not just based on the Magnificent Seven, this clearly is taking the Magnificent Seven and rewriting it with just a change in setting, and let's put Han Solo and Chewbacca into it. Uh, and that's not bad it's a classic story and it works and it has worked in many, many different places, but I'll talk more about that later, but there's just some things that Roy Thomas does here in this issue that it feels like, I don't know. It feels a little too jokey. It feels like, and it's not the characters telling the jokes, it's the characters are the jokes. It's there's just a a problem of tone. Uh, The story itself. I mean, Last issue was a really bad cliffhanger. It was unexciting. Um, uh, Chewie had two lady friends that he was going to go off with. And Han had a blue lady that he was macking on who disappeared when three uh, short men in green robes offered Han a proposition. Suddenly, those three men, in, three short men in green robes become three regular sized men in, in uh, you know, Luke Skywalker style farming clothes. And... Han is being attacked by Big Green Lizard Guy, who is the Blue Lady's boyfriend, and Han talks big when he's, you know, answering back to him, but, uh, then realizes Chewie's not there to back him up, and Big Green Lizard Guy wipes the floor with, with Han until Chewie returns from his romantic interlude with those two ladies and and then you know this whole scene here the setup it's kind of funny it's kind of goofy but it's not real bad it's it's not going into you know jokey joke territory it it feels like you know han solo is full of bravado until he realizes that chewbacca is not there and then when chewbacca does come the resolution again kind of fun kind of funny and big green lizard guy he is out of the picture um for the time being he's actually going to be a well, he's the primary antagonist, I guess, here. I at one point I thought maybe he was going to join Han Solo's band of men, but that's not exactly what happens with him. Anyway, uh he goes to talk to those the, the three peasants who have a problem, and their problem is that they need a protector. A champion. And the the person that they need a champion to or that they need the protector to protect them from is a man named Um He's uh he, he leads a group of cloud riders, and this man's name is Sergi X. Arrogantus, the arrogant one. Uh, he and his men are outlaws, and I'm just going to go ahead and read what the, the men actually say to Han Solo here from, from the actual text here. He and his men, outlaws, who live in the mist-shrouded hills outside our village, come forth each year at about this time to exact tribute from us. "'who have barely enough to feed ourselves. "'They stampede our banthas, "'which we raise for food and transportation. "'If we try to resist, they will burn our meager crops, "'which scarcely feed us well in the best of years, "'and they carry off our wives, our daughters, "'merely to amuse themselves. "'I have said that they are devils, Master Solo, "'and there is no other word that fits them so well. "'We have little money, but we can offer you food and shelter.' You must help us, masters, or our village will soon cease to be. And then Han Solo, he's really snarky. It's weird. He's snarky, but then there's a few times where he says something that was really, well, here's here's the answer. He says, uh, you know, the guy just said that our, our village will cease to be. And Han Solo says, yeah, that'd be a real loss to the galaxy. All right. Uh, and then the, the guy says, beg pardon? Ah, skip it. We'll take the job. Like, this is this is what I'm talking about with the writing. I, I feel almost like it's not being taken seriously here. Like we're doing a parody almost or we're doing something, you know, it, it's a ripoff. We already know that. But, um, you know, there's a couple times where he does that, though, where he'll say something that's really inappropriate, kind of mean spirited. But then he's like, yeah, forget about it. I don't really mean it because we're going to I'm going to help you anyway, uh, because you don't have good, very good hearing. I don't have to worry about what I just said anyway han solo decides he wants to um i mean very quickly he's decided i'm going to take the job and i need people to help and so um he he uh puts out the word and there then the next scene is people standing in line outside his door they're coming in to kind of Do a tryout. And Han Solo is sitting in his... This is is the weird art choice. Han Solo is sitting in his room. In his hotel room at this cantina. Just in in his pants. He's he's not wearing a shirt. It's just kind of weird. Like, what? (laughs) Was this scripted like that? Was this an art choice? And he spends the entire time... Shirtless as people are coming to his room to say "I want to help you um here, here's the people who come to try out uh, to be part of the magnificent eight against the galaxy there's hedgy who needs a job for reasons he'd rather not get into he doesn't have a blaster Han's not really interested in having this guy come with him because the guy's not armed but then he actually shoots quills out of his body um like a, a porcupine a superhero porcupine kind of thing. Uh, so he's in Amaza, who is a woman from Han's past who can uh, apparently handle a blaster. Um, she has cat eyes and this weird kind of poofy puff shoulder shirt thing. It's, it's just weird. But she's, she's someone that Han knows and they have a little bit of a back and forth and she's in. And then we have uh, and here's where we get a little more wacky. Uh, Don Juan Quixote. Uh, you know, like Obi-Wan, Don Juan, Quixote, a Jedi Knight, uh, who's a little bit crazy. He's in uh, the way he's drawn. He's meant to look like he's he's just not quite right in the head. He says he's a Jedi Knight. He doesn't really show that he has any control over the force, but he definitely says that he has control over the force. Um, He has a lightsaber. He does. and But he doesn't understand that uh, Darth Vader destroyed the Jedi. Years ago, the Jedi have been outlawed since the rise of the Empire. Um, But Han and and Chewie, they recognize that he's crazy, but he won't get in the way too much. (laughs) He then bows down in front of Han with his sword. I mean, it's clearly, I mean, this is Don Juan. Obviously, Don Juan Quixote. uh, It's not even hidden. So we're just ripping off things left and right and not even trying to hide it. Next, we have Jackson. A, um, the way he describes himself is a lepus carnivorous, a meat-eaten, rocket-riding rabbit to you. Uh, and he proves that he is worthy of joining the team because Big Green comes back and cuts in line in front of him. And when he does that, he, uh, gives him this nice kick with his great big giant rabbit foot and knocks that big green lizard guy down the stairs and yeah so we have green rabbit guy who's six feet tall and he is he's on he's in the team Uh, and like i said his name is jackson and and this is someone that gets pointed to often when people talk about the ridiculousness of the star wars comic books is that you have this this uh, six foot tall green rabbit who looks a lot like Bugs Bunny, we'll get into that, and as well, we've, I do have a quote from Roy Thomas about why and how he created this character. Finally, we have numbers uh, five and six, which are Jim, the Star Killer Kid, and his tractor robot FE9Q, also known as Effie. And Han Solo can see the use of the robot, but Jim, well, Jim, he he has to prove himself. And how is he going to do that? He's just a kid. But Han Solo gets to thinking. It kind of reminds him of of Luke. And speaking of Luke. The cover did promise the deadly mission of Luke Skywalker. So as Han thinks about Luke. We move over to Yavin 4. Uh, where Luke is getting ready to get his mission. His deadly mission. Which is to go into a spaceship. And he's going to go find a new base. For the Rebel Alliance. Now, Leia wants to go with him, uh, but she's not allowed to because she's a symbol now and a leader now that her father is, is gone. And I like it. I, I like, it. they didn't spend a lot of time here. Um, you know, Leia gets just a couple panels, but she's, you know, she thinks back then about what she's been through and she finally has time to think. And, but then we leave her and we go to Luke, who is thinking about what happened in the movie, uh, basically gives us a nice little recap. And like I said, this is where you see Darth Vader, and Darth Vader is hard to draw, but done well here. It's Chewbacca on the cover, who's really hard to draw, and who is very obvious that whoever is drawing him uh, just hasn't spent a lot of time looking at him. Now, we're we're talking about this 30 years later, right? Uh, No, more than that. I mean, we're almost, what, 35 years? It doesn't matter. We're talking about this a long time later. But... Uh, back then, I, I still can't help but think, there's gotta be some photo reference. You know, that, that, that cover, man. He, Chewbacca just looks like he's, his hair is kind of styled out into these, uh, straight little pony, I don't even know how to, how to describe what he's done with his hair there. He's just got this nicely muscular body, but then just this weird, uh, weird hairstyle coming off his head there. Anyway. Um, as Luke reminisces about the previous movie and does a flashback, which is basically, you know, just to remind you what happened in that movie. Uh, he thinks about how Han Solo rescued him from Darth Vader. And as he reminisces about Han, well, speaking of Han Solo, we're going to go back. And he now has his eight. He's letting Jim come on because, you know, Jim reminds him of, of that other farm boy. But now they've got visitors. And it's Sergi X. Sergi X has been tipped off by Big Green, and, uh, you know, it's kind of nice. Big Green, he he shows up. He is mean to Han Solo. They have a little bit of a fight. He gets thrown out the window by Chewbacca. Then he gets kicked down the stairs by Jackson. And it's nice. It's a nice little setup, you know. Uh, he needs a job, and he's going to get in line to get a job with Han Solo. Can't get that, so he's going to go off and get some money from Sergi X. It's nice. It's it's a nice little thing. And I'll give that to the writing here from Roy Thomas. I really like that element. Other elements here, I'm not so much such such a big fan of. But uh, Sergi X offers Han uh, more money. He offers Han more money than the the people of the village could ever give him. And Han has an interesting answer. He says, they're giving us all they can, friend. And that's the best pay I've ever had. A sand route like you could never begin to match their price. And I'm reminded actually of the, the, the uh, parable of the woman. Actually, no, it's not a parable, but uh, the woman in, in the gospels who Jesus is watching and all the Pharisees are like dumping tons of money into the offering. Uh, I don't know what it was, but it's outside the temple, they're putting money into the offering basket or whatever. And then this woman comes and just drops in these two coins, but it's everything she had. And Jesus points out, you know, they've given so much money, but she is given so much more because of, you know, percentage of income versus percent, you know, how much she's given. And that's the same kind of thing here is that these guys have offered just a lot for them. It makes me wonder, why is Han taking the job here? Because that's the the one thing I, I don't really see a good reason for him to turn and say, yeah, I'm going to take this job because uh, I want to help you guys out. Instead, he's just kind of snarky and mean to them. Then he takes the job and then, you know, he gets offered more money and he's well, I'm still going to take the job because um, he doesn't say anything like it's the right thing to do. I mean, he he doesn't say anything. It just it almost feels like he's just doing it to be contrary like i you know i'm i'm a lone wolf i'm a rebel i'm going to do whatever anyone else expects me to not do i'm just going to do it you know but um anyway the guy says you know don't come i'll give you money han says no i'm going to go work for them and here's a tip for you why don't you just leave the village alone now because uh you know we're not going to back down and, of course, then Sergi X says, no way. And he leaves. And the conflict is set up now. It is locked. It is loaded. We are ready for the next issue. a uh, Much better uh, set up than the, than the last issue set up. And, and it's not bad. Like I said, we've seen the story before. We've seen it in Seven Samurai. We've seen it in The Magnificent Seven. We've seen it in The Seven Magnificent Gladiators. We've seen it in The Three Amigos. We've seen it in The Magnificent Seven Ride Again or Return or whatever it is. There's Four movies in that series and a TV show, then. I just read that there's actually a, a movie coming in 2017. They'll star Chris Pratt uh, and Vincent D'Onofrio, actually, I guess, returning from their pairing up in Jurassic World. Um, we, we've also seen it in The Bugs Life. It's a decent story about people who are helpless, looking for someone to stand and fight for them. And they find these people who are skilled but down on their luck or who um don't have as much to offer as as what they're looking for but they're going to go and help anyway because they know it's the right thing to do. It's a good story worth stealing and worth revising and especially if you're going to steal it and and use it and give it a twist, you know, but What's happening here is that it's being stolen and there's two problems here. And one, uh, I, I have to lay this at the feet of Roy Thomas. The story feels like a parody and it feels like he's not taking this seriously. At the very least, it feels like he doesn't understand the tone of what he just got done working on with the movie. Uh, or maybe it's just us in hindsight looking back and saying, OK, there was one movie The book Splinter of the Mind's Eye has not even come out yet. The only stories that we have from Star Wars is the movie and this. And so maybe I'm looking at this and saying, well, after this came Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and all these comics, all these books, all these stories. And the tone was never like this, except for maybe on the droids cartoon show or maybe on the Ewoks TV specials. I don't know. But uh, it just feels like there's just no idea of tone. And I feel like he's just kind of going through the motions here. And, and maybe he was. And then the second thing is the art. And what happened there? Well, again, I, I've got some quotes here from Roy Thomas's article in Alter Ego that he wrote uh, where he, he actually says, um, as, I prog- as this progressed, he says, I came to feel that Howard Chaikin, for whose artwork I'd always had the utmost respect, wasn't giving his all on the pencil layouts. As I learned later... He was actually being ghosted part of the time by our mutual friend, Alan Cooperberg, who is doing a credible job, a creditable job. But Chaykin is Chaykin. Nobody else is. And there's truth there. I mean, Chaykin is really, really good. Uh, Now, our next issue will be Howard Chaykin and Tom Palmer. And then, you know, looking ahead, um, it's not until issue um, number 11, where Carmine Infantino and Terry Austin are working on, on star Wars. Uh, but this is kind of, as we go along, (laughs) uh, Ray Thomas is realizing that, yeah, you know what? He's not really doing all the, you know, the whole job himself and not giving it his all. And, you know, I really have to agree. Uh, I think Roy Thomas is definitely giving more than, than Howard Chaiken here. Uh, but here's, let's talk about Jackson a little bit. And this is what Roy Thomas says about creating the character of Jackson. He says, George particularly disliked one of the seven being a six foot alien who resembled the green Bugs Bunny in space gear. In the latter instance, I have been inspired in part by seeing a porky pig looking alien in the cantina sequence, either in the rough cut or on some production schedules at some early point. I don't remember if that alien appears in the finished movie, since that part of the film contains several 11th-hour inserts of other, more colorful-looking aliens sitting in dark corners, and something may have been cut to make room for them. I had figured my green rabbit, Jackson, wasn't really much weirder than a Wookiee, but obviously George, as the creator of the Star Wars mythos, felt differently. I respected George and Charlie, but this line of conversation was beginning to annoy me. Um... And so there you have it. It, it, There's the explanation. He saw Porky Pig and said, why not Bugs Bunny, I guess? So, yeah, so this is an infamous issue. uh, In part because of the Green Rabbit. In part because of the the tone uh, shift in the artwork. And then also a little bit of tone shift. Although there was still some of the stuff, this kind of goofy stuff going on in the previous issue. But all things considered... Uh, I feel like I may have wasted, you know, some of my, uh, dilithium and going back in time or something to get this one. It really, it's, it's a relic is what it is. It is a, uh, an artifact of its time and I'm happy to go and revisit and see this stuff. But when I, and, and that's part of why I'm doing this, you're reading these star Wars comics is because of the history and yeah, it's not canon, but it's star wars comic book marvel canon uh it's part of that that 107 issues or 111 if you include the return of the jedi uh four issue series it's part of that canon and so it belongs to that but there's also the history there of this is the first expanded universe stories to be published to be seen by anyone and this is what comes out (laughs) is this green rabbit in a ripoff of the magnificent seven Uh, So anyway, I'm going to stop talking here about this. Um, It's an important issue in history, but I'm not enjoying myself. And that's the one other thing is I want to read these comics and be drawn into a science fiction story that I can enjoy myself in. And this so far is not it. Last issue. Was closer because the whole the whole thing with the co- coffin and we're gonna keep going. We're gonna fight and you know we're gonna make sure that the spacer gets the burial he deserves. But here, where you have these crazy characters, I don't know what they're gonna do with with Don Juan and with Jackson and, and all that. But uh, I'm not terribly excited about the next couple of issues. Uh, so I'm gonna stop there though, and and we're gonna move on to to some of the other stuff that, that we have here in, in store, including, you know, the, the first men on the moon, which is, you know, that's that's a classic of sci-fi by H. G. Wells, and we have, you know, but I think we're gonna Yeah, let's go ahead and and, and, and do human fly and, and let's get that out of the way. When you set the time machine coordinates to November 1977 And you walk into your 7-Eleven or the stoppy shoppy as I did. And you step into the row that has the magazine rack and the spinner rack or whatever. You would be greeted by a bright yellow cover with the words the human fly splashed across the top. Also splashed across the top so you don't forget is the wildest superhero ever. Because he's real. To remind you that this ain't no made up superhero. This guy is like Sergeant Slaughter to G.I. Joe. This guy is like Stephen Hawking to Star Trek The Next Generation. This guy is like uh, Mr. T to different strokes. This guy is a real guy in a made-up universe. And he's there to walk on tightropes and kick guns out of bad guys' hands. And from the looks of things on the cover, he's all out of tightropes. Now, that doesn't sound very intimidating, I guess. Um, And strictly speaking... uh, the cover is not very intimidating either um and the cover promises again fear in funland that's the the promise that we get and the cover seems to be a typical superhero cover front and center the hero is leaping kicking his cape flapping behind him and his pimp cane in one hand while a bad guy gets a gun kicked out of his own hand and the second bad guy is they're kind of in the background taking a shot at human fly, but just a second too late as the bullet goes through the human fly's Cape. Then you look closer and, and the crazy kicks in a little bit. Uh, the human fly is leaping through the air, uh, but he's obviously really high up. He's falling straight down. And uh, uh well, how do I know he's really high up? It's because there's, they're on a ride, a, a fun land ride, a parachute jump, I think is what it's called. And, the both of the bad guys are actually just sitting on chairs in the ride uh i don't think they're strapped in no safety here but they're sitting there they're taking shots at him uh the one guy he's a standard issue goon that you would probably expect to you know uh i guess be applying at any you know organized crime job fair he's wearing a green pinstripe suit and brown dress shoes and the other guy, though, he, he basically stole a, a suit from the Joker's 70s wardrobe. It's a purple suit with green shirt and purple tie. But he's also rocking these awesome platform shoes. And he's got these shades that just don't quit. And I'm serious about that. These shades appear to be only lenses, nothing else. Uh, Just lenses kind of in a weird shape. Um. They don't look like any sunglasses I've ever seen. But, you know, it's the 70s. And I don't remember a lot of the 70s. I I just lived through about six years of it. So, uh, anyway, his smoking gun is tumbling uh, toward the reader and toward the ground. The whole scene is almost exciting until you're kind of looking at it and realizing, oh, these guys are just sitting on a ride. uh, Going around shooting at the human fly while he's jumping down at them. Uh, So... It's almost exciting, and it knows lets us know exactly what to expect. Here's what to expect. Human Fly will be at a fun land, probably with some kids, although they're not on the cover. And he will find some bad guys there, and he will fight them on a tall ride and defeat them. So the cover out of the way, the cover, by the way, is by Frank Robbins, um, who's the interior artist. But with the cover out of the way, let's get into the plot. Here's the plot. Human Fly is at a fun land with some kids. And he finds some bad guys there and he fights them on a tall ride and defeats them. Yeah, I mean, so that's the what, you know. Uh, and as we've talked about with Star Wars and Magnificent, Magnificent Seven, the what details aren't always important. Uh, the more important details are the how. How does the story play out? How does the story work? Uh, you've got all these things that, you know, we already know the ending, The cover is showing us what could be the ending. Human Fly is going to win. They're going to fight on a ride. But what is our ride? What is the ride the reader goes on to get there? Well, let's see. First of all, this is written, again, by Bill Mantlow. Penciler is Frank Robbins. Anchor is Rod Santiago. Letterer is June Christie. And the colorist is Francois Mouly. Uh, Open up the book, though. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) You know, I'm talking about the how. Well, let's get into the how. Here it is. You open the book. You're treated to a splash page that tells me this comic is going to be wearing clown shoes and not the good kind of clown shoes. The kind of clown shoes that just say ridiculous. Um, I opened up the book and I sighed. I did. side audibly human fly is on the front of a roller coaster in the front car of the roller coaster his cape is flapping in the wind basically flapping into the faces of people who are two rows behind him and he's squeezed into the front seat with two kids on either side of him uh the safety bar the safety bar is not even engaged in fact he has his foot on the safety bar his leg is up his knee is up high his foot is on the safety bar as if to push it forward it's like he's, it's like he's doing this because hey i'm the human fly stuntman and uh even if the kids i'm sitting with aren't stuntmen well i am and they're okay because they're with me uh you know i i might be nitpicking except no i'm not nitpicking i'm not nitpicking at all this this uh this splash page is terrifying for all the wrong reasons uh it just it looks ridiculous, and he's he's in there with three people crammed into a two-person seat it's just it's just wrong I, I don't understand it uh, but I will give some good storytelling uh, points to the background, which has the parachute ride in clear view. You can see it right there and get a nice good view of the entire ride. So anyway the, the kids are children of handicapped parents, and one thing I do appreciate about this comic and about an earlier issue too. Uh, actually, last issue uh, is the way that it, this is bringing attention to both children who had disabilities in last issue, and children of parents with disabilities in this issue. That's who Human Fly is treating a day at the at the Funland to is these this group of kids whose parents have handicaps or, or disabilities, and what's well i appreciate this you know this is a group of people who don't have a voice the way some other groups of people do have and as a result you know even now where there's a lot more awareness uh they're mocked uh, or they're forgotten or they're even you know intentionally isolated because of either they have differences that people don't know how to handle or they have differences that people just think are you know funny i mean People make jokes about it because it makes them uncomfortable or because they think it's funny, you know, and uh, they're – or maybe it's just people don't know how to interact with them or or don't know how to interact with someone who's dealt with tragedy or don't know how to interact with someone who has, you know, a family member that that is different from from a typical uh, family. And, you know, what's, what's interesting to me about this is back in the 70s when this book was coming out. Um, my father was working with adults who had both physical and cognitive disabilities. So growing up, I was exposed to a lot of the discrimination and, and, and honestly, ignorance that came along with people who were interacting with, with people who had handicaps or disabilities. And I got to see firsthand how my dad and the organization he worked for in Ontario, uh, worked to inform the general public and also worked to educate um, the the men and women that they that they served and also to advocate for the men and women that they served and so I have to say that the human fly in general and this issue in particular and last issue too does get some points in my mind simply because of the compassion that it is showing especially considering you know the time period that it was coming from and so it's compassion that it's also showing but also trying to foster you know and, and to get people to you know it's it's normalizing this it's it's not just you know shining a spotlight on these people and saying oh pity them pity them because they're parents are handicapped it's it's just you know that's the that's the real life facts of these kids lives and so you know what we're just giving them a good day because they have to deal with things that that other kids don't have to deal with so we're gonna give them a fun day at Funland with a real life superhero and i get the impression that the human fly this is something that he was advocating for and that he felt strongly about was you know people with handicaps and disabilities Children, you know, he wanted to inspire people. And so I I appreciate that. I, I do. That's about all I have of, as far as kind words for this issue go. Uh, human fly senses after they're off the ride that uh, some criminal doings are afoot. And he quickly leaves the group of children that he was uh, endangering on the roller coaster and sends them off with his friends. While he goes to investigate the crime and he finds some stock gangsters or mobsters, whatever it are uh, they're using an out of order uh, shooting range attraction where you like shoot into the clown's mouth uh, to open a secret door that leads below the haunted house. And uh, we do have one subplot we need to get into, which is Harmony White, the reporter who's been trying to um, expose Human Fly. Uh, She's not all that interested in exposing him anymore. And um, I I do have to say that um, Harmony White, uh, who when she was drawn by Carmen Infantino, might have become a comical crush for me if he had continued the book. Uh, But fortunately here uh, she's drawn by Frank Robbins and it allows me to avoid uh, any and all awkward feelings that i might have had about her um she's changed her feelings about human fly just as i've changed my feelings about her and she doesn't believe that his charlatan showboating is well charlatan showboating she's not interested in the expose anymore her boss is and basically gives her an ultimatum and she's not happy what's going to happen there i don't know i guess we'll find out next issue meanwhile uh the human fly has infiltrated the tunnel of fear and he rides in on that small little boat but when the gangsters assault him he's not there it's only his cape what yeah so he's able to get past them and he finds a stolen car ring a, a chop shop really underneath uh funland it, What? <laughs> yeah, yeah it's true uh, one of the gangsters then draws a gun on him and misses but it hits a single power line that cuts out all the lights in the entire chop shop uh, again what suddenly i feel like i'm watching that episode of daredevil on on netflix as human fly fights all the gangster mechanics in the dark only it's not daredevil it's human fly and instead of superhuman senses that allows him to know what's in the dark from his hearing and his other enhanced senses while the people around him are blinded by the actual darkness uh and instead of that He gets out because he has an advantage over the mobster mechanics uh, in that before the lights went out, he memorized the layout of the place. (laughs) <laughs> again it's kind of what so he gets out of the haunted house through the roof jumps onto the parachute parachute jump which takes him up the goons all take the time to go and sit down in the chairs the way they're supposed to but not human fly he's a stunt man so he's running up the side of the, the ride dodging bullets while he climbs the structure and he goes to the center of the wheel His friends are alerted by the gunshots, and they come to help him and take control of the ride, spinning it around and around faster and faster and faster than it is meant to go. Again, putting people in danger, although I guess the guns, maybe the guns are more of a danger than the spinning around on the ride. But I I don't think there are any civilians on there. I hope not. (laughs) We only see the gangsters. Anyway, uh, his friends do that, help him out. But Human Fly is not affected by the spinning because he has made it to the hub of the... The giant metal wheel, uh, and so he's not spinning around on that uh, because that's that's stationary. It's 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 set in place. Uh, the goons, however, are, and they are super dizzy when the ride stops. They're all groaning. At least one of them throws up. Now the barf is off-panel, but that guy, that sound effect coming out of his word balloon is definitely vomit. I mean, he's <laughs> it's spelled uh b-l-a-a-h-p-p i mean if that's not a vomit sound i don't know what is and i think that's definitely a contender for the special effect of the day because really for the last few months the only special effects we've been getting are chewy going grok so yeah a nice good blop is is i'm glad to see it so human fly at least wins one thing uh this month of comics uh from february cover date february 78 and that is the blop the sound effect of the day anyway uh we then get to the final page and we laugh at the goons as human fly then also inspires the kids and we get a 70s family action show wrap up that's you know just full of of terrible jokes i'm gonna go ahead and just read it you know um the kids say mr fly you were just terrific Yeah, super too. No, kids. Anyone could have done what I did with the proper training. As he lands on his tiptoes doing a flip off of the the ride. And with three friends who know what to do in a jam. (laughs) And then uh, one of his friends says, You think you're ready for another day off fly? Not until I recover from this one, Blaze. Yeah. I can almost imagine them all in that last panel just freeze framing as they laugh. Chips style and for those youngsters out there chips is a 70s cop show that freeze-framed them while they laughed at a really bad joke at the very end of the episode anyway this whole thing it's not bad enough to be funny it's not good enough to be actually funny it's not one of those so bad it's good it's kind of just so mediocre it's bad and i've already spent more time analyzing this than it really Deserves in my mind. Again, I, I like the spotlight getting shown on, shown upon people with disabilities and the way it's, it kind of, like I said, normalizes them as, as just people, you know, they're, they're people who have different problems than, than a typical family might have, but, uh, not a lot of time was spent on that, uh, it just, you know, like I said, being a normal thing for them. It's it's a normalizing, and I remember that that was part of my my dad's job in the seventies was was awareness and and helping people to gain acceptance on a larger scale. And back then, I felt like it was just beginning, or at least that's the impression that I got as I remember things back in the seventies. But and it might have just been in the area where I lived as well, up in Ontario. But anyway, I, I'm done. It's time. <laughs> to move on to something more fun i hope so uh i think i'm gonna go ahead and and crack open uh my my godzilla comics here godzilla number seven uh cover date was february 78 on sale date november 1st 1977 cover price 35 cents and if human fly was a poorly spent 35 cents Godzilla, well, I don't want to give too much away, but let's just say it was not poorly spent. How's that? It's entitled Birth of a Warrior, and that warrior, well, the cover tells us, uh, well, actually, the cover tells us and Godzilla to look out, Godzilla. Here comes Red Ronin. Now, I don't ask for much in my kaiju movies. Um, I just ask kaiju movies to not go too crazy, unless you plan to go really crazy, and then give me some good old-fashioned fight scenes with a uh, human story that's relevant to the monster story. I want the human story and the monster story to intersect and play off each other. At least um, for one to play off the other, anyway. If not both stories, to play off of each other. And I, basically, that means I, I want my my uh, human characters to matter <laughs> in the story, and I want visual battles in movies. That means great miniature work and costume design and suit acting. Because, you know, I I appreciate the artistry of film. Uh, I can watch a bad movie and sometimes I'll appreciate the movie that's really poorly made simply because of the intention behind the movie, what the movie makers were going for. And with that, just a kind of appreciation of the artistry of the film and then the intention of the filmmakers um, with kaiju movies, you kind of have this great intersection of artistry and intention and the kaiju movies. Japanese monster movies, particularly, uh, when, when I say kaiju, that's really what, what I'm talking about. Uh, they have a unique artistry that I really enjoy, and that goes back to the visceral thrill and the laughs that I got when I was watching monster movies as a kid and still enjoy now. And I can sit down with my kids and watch King Kong versus Godzilla, and we can ooh and ah-ha and laugh and, and enjoy uh, a well-made, even if it's kind of goofy, monster movie. So I, I kind of hold that standard for the Godzilla comics too, but there's a little bit more to it than that. Godzilla comic books, um, they have to do the same kind of thing. They have to give me something visual that I can hold on to, that I can appreciate the artistry and enjoy the, you know, the the basically the, the behemoths fighting. Um, but with, and modern Godzilla comics, they usually don't do not Do it for me. I just don't enjoy them very much. I I start reading them and then I'll I'll let them go. I I don't continue collecting them or reading them. Um, That said, Marvel's Godzilla comics are a little bit different because within this series, there's an added bonus. And that's Dum Dum Dugan. That's S.H.I.E.L.D. That's the Marvel Universe in general. This is Kaiju-flavored chocolate dipped into my Marvel 616 crunchy peanut butter. Uh, So I'm more forgiving... In some ways, because there's more to offer. There's more facets for me to accept. I may not like the Godzilla stuff, but it's given me some good S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff, you know, an enjoyable Dum Dum Dugan. And by the way, Dum Dum Dugan is going to be starring in an upcoming comic series called, um, uh, Howling Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I believe is the title, which is Dum Dum Dugan, man thing, uh, just a bunch of Marvel monsters, basically, uh, it's like they said hey let's make a comic that's strictly just for that ben avery guy we're not gonna let him write it which would be you know too much for him to handle he he would just go crazy but we'll let him read it you know and, and just blow his mind a little bit uh but anyway there's more for me to accept and more for me to hold on to if one side isn't working is something else working and so for the most part there's the Godzilla comic has has been a hit for me. Uh, I've enjoyed it, even when it's kind of kind of dumb. Uh, not every time, but but mostly. Anyway, this issue is very simple. Last issue issue we were slowly lumbering toward a promised clash between Godzilla and the the uh, anime giant robot inspired uh, Red Red Ronin. And this issue we continue in that direction. Last issue Godzilla had been drugged. He had been pulled onto the behemoth carrier and imprisoned, but he escaped. And that was our cliffhanger. And meanwhile, the secret project giant robot that Stark Industries was helping S.H.I.E.L.D. build was nearing completion. But Kenny, I mean Rob, snuck aboard to stop it so Godzilla would not be hurt by it. And so now in this issue, two monsters are rampaging. Two, well, sort of rampaging. Godzilla is definitely rampaging. Uh, pretty upset about the whole drugged, dragged, and imprisoned thing. And now he's rampaging towards some really poor decision-making on the, the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent's part. Um, basically, the higher-ups at S.H.I.E.L.D. or the government or someone decided to place the prison in like an air base that's right next to a bunch of nuclear missiles, which is not great planning uh, considering how powerful Godzilla is and his propensity for you know, not being locked up very well. Uh, Dum-Dum, Dugan, and Gabriel are dealing with that problem. They're attacking him and they're firing missiles. They're trying to hold him off so he can't get to those missiles. The giant robot, meanwhile, has been activated by Rob, who put on the mental control helmet, was knocked unconscious by it. And so the robot is really not rampaging. It's more sleepwalking uh, peacefully, but toward gas storehouse uh, tanks or something that if he gets to them, it will pretty much destroy the whole industrial complex. So Agent Wu, who's in love with Rob's sister and has a lot on his mind since she seems to not be in love with him, he jumps into action, gets into the the, the head of the thing pulls out rob just in time as the foot almost steps on the the tanks of of gas great it's good uh the industrial complex is saved but godzilla he is still trying to get to those nuclear missiles so woo volunteers to take the giant robot to attack godzilla and Tamara has an emotional response to that and so maybe she has more feelings than she's let on to we'll find out that later uh but the robot doesn't work because it's now tuned into Rob's mental commands, he messed things up in the circuits, and so, as they make that realization, Rob sneaks on board he j- jumps into the robot and he goes off uh he takes it off to go and stop Godzilla and make sure that the big G's not gonna get hurt and so uh in a scene that's not quite as stupid, but um almost i I just i don't like this kind of thing i hated it in phantom menace i'm just gonna say it right now i hated it phantom menace i'm not a big fan of it here although it works a little bit better because at least the kid is doing it on purpose instead of in phantom menace where it's like oops i just destroyed this oops i just destroyed oops i'm flying oops i'm really good at flying oops i'm shooting oops i just blew up everything and turned off all the robots down on the planet instead of oops 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 it's he's doing this on purpose and he has motivation for that and i like that uh so anyway Um, he is flying to the airbase where Godzilla is about to either ignite a nuclear blast that's going to blow up one missile, which will take up the other ones with it, or he could accidentally launch the missiles, which would ignite World War III. Either way, it's bad. Uh, While he's flying, by the way, he names the robot Red Ronin, and and here's why I'm going to read it to you. Uh, Maybe we should give them something new to call us. How about... Ronin. Yeah, the Japanese word for samurai without a master. A warrior who owes no loyalty and knows no flag. Who serves no one but himself and his own good conscience. Ronin it is. Red Ronin. And I think we're going to be good friends, Red Ronin. Um, s- secret to you, Rob. No, you're not going to be good friends because the fact is you are controlling the robot. That is like saying you're going to be good friends with, you know, a puppet. Which I guess makes sense for a young child. But anyway. uh, So he lands and he slams into Godzilla's back. Cutting... And then he cuts off Big G from the missiles. And we get a standoff. Big G and Double R to be continued. And from here, I'm just going to say the art in this issue is great. It's solid. There's clean lines of my black and white edition. Anyway, kinetic panels, um, emotional characters and reactions. Rev Ronin is a pretty cool design, uh, obviously riffing on that giant robot anime show that would have been dubbed on afternoon cartoon blocks back then, uh, but also then on the Shogun Warriors that were on the toy shelves around this time. But if we're going to talk about art, uh... The biggest thing i have to talk about is about the two-page splash this issue ends on so we're gonna have to talk about that after the story here now remember what i've been saying as we look at star wars and human fly about it. it's not just the what but it's the how and this story is an origin story it plods forward it's slow uh it's teasing us with stuff that it doesn't really deliver on as far as you know we're gonna see a fight but not this issue and not this one either uh it's it's teasing us with that big fight between big g and, and rr i mean two issues that's that's a little too much but we have stuff that we have to get through we have to set up the drama with the missiles and the threat of world war three we have to set up the melodrama with woo and Tamara, the love story and also rob getting in the robot which is another emotional element for Tamara to watch her brother fly off into battle against godzilla you know that's really not something most people can walk away from if they're going to take on godzilla one-on-one and uh, and then we also have to do what they failed with last issue. Give a dramatic cliffhanger. So drama, melodrama, and dramatic cliffhanger. That's what this is has to do. And it works. It does it well. I'm not enjoying some of the melodrama. I'm not enjoying some of the drama. But And the truth is, I kind of hate Rob. I really don't like him that much. In Mr. Science Theater 3000, they riffed on the Kenny character from the Gamera film. And Rob is definitely that kind of Kenny type of character. He's the kid you put in there so kids can relate to him, but it kind of makes it kind of drags the movie or in this case, the comic down a little bit. But I whatever, you know, I wonder if I was a kid, if I would hate the character so much, because let's face it, the kid gets to drive a robot as powerful as Godzilla. Okay, that's awesome. If I was a kid, I think I probably would really, really like this. I'm reading it now, and I want Wu in there. I want Wu to drive this thing, man. Um, And so I don't really exactly like the setup of Rob wanting to save Godzilla. However, I don't remember where this goes. Maybe it could lead us somewhere interesting, um, the child endangerment aside, I guess. But all problems that I have melt away. I've read this, and I'm reading along, and I get to the end, and any issues I have with this issue melts away when I arrive at the glorious... Climactic cliffhanger, a two-page spread. It makes me think of Jack Kirby for some reason. There's something, something to the shading or to the, the ink work. Because again, I'm I'm reading in black and white. That um, as Godzilla is on one page, he's facing off with Red Ronin on the other page and the missiles are dangerously looming large over us because our perspective is low and so we're looking up and And you're looking at these two pages and my eye anyway sees the missiles first and then kind of travels up red Ronin and then goes over to the other page where Godzilla is even you know bigger and looking down and, uh, and you know Godzilla has a, he's roaring and there's steam pouring from his mouth And uh, from his battle against the the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents and as they held him back as long as they could. And now they couldn't hold him back any longer. But Red Ronin, he is there. He stands defiantly in Godzilla's way. And this is what I wanted last issue. I wanted this to happen last issue. They give it to me in this issue. This is the cliffhanger I want that's going to take me to the fight that I want. And that's what they, again, promise They say, next issue, the Battle of the Ages. I love this. The Battle of the Ages, when two raging titans clash on a field laden with potential holocaust in Godzilla versus the Red Ronin. By the way, potential holocaust, I think I found the name for my surf rock band when I learn how to play guitar and assemble a group of people who can do surf rock. But anyway, I'm also, (laughs) if I'm ready for my surf rock band, I'm. Definitely ready for next issue. Uh, I want to see what happens. And I've seen the cover of next issue. It is a classic, classic cover that'll have to wait Uh, for right now. We're going to jump into a new series as we jump into the man from Atlantis coming up next. So man from Atlantis. Here is my experience with man from Atlantis. Uh, First patrick duffy second patrick duffy um i saw him on step by step and i was aware of him on dallas because everyone was aware of him on dallas back then in the 80s when he was on dallas he was a really high profile tv star but before that he was mark harris the man from atlantis he was a web-fingered man who could withstand deep ocean pressure and he could breathe underwater. And he had no memory of where he came from before he washed up on the beach. He also had four successful TV movies in 1977, around there. And then that was ordered to a 13-episode half-season. That uh, The first episode of that was aired in September of 1997. In November of 1997, the first issue of the comic hit the stands, and the book itself is a hefty book. I already mentioned this is a dollar, a dollar cover price, and it's it's got that perfect binding of a spine kind of thing. Um, not not exactly the perfect binding, but that that solid binding rather than the saddle regular saddle stitch. And it has two stories, both of them are 25 pages long, so that's 30 pages of story that you're getting, which, um, is, you know, it's, you know, a regular issue you're getting 17 pages of story, no, 30 pages of story. What am i am talking about? 50 pages of story. Well, what can I say? Math is hard. Um, 50 pages of story, uh, which you buy two comics at 35 cents, you're getting 17 pages of story. That's 34 pages. Uh, you're still getting, you know, another 16 pages. Basically you're getting three issues worth of what passed for a typical story in a $0.35 cent comic that same month. So you're you're getting that for a dollar. You're, you're already a nickel ahead uh, of of things. But then there's also these articles. Uh, it has a two-page profile on Patrick Duffy. A three-page article about a set visit that D- uh, David and Janice Cohen were able to take part in, where they got to see some of the underwater sets and miniatures and meet the crew and watch some filming. Uh, and then Joe Duffy... Wrote an overview of where the series was going in this new season, uh, this actual season of one-hour episodes rather than the, I guess, the two-hour uh, TV movies that they had had uh, shown on NBC. And there were also some great pin-ups by uh, Gene Colin and Joe Sinnott and Mike Zek. And finally, there was a letters page write-up uh, by uh, Archie Goodwin, that, that mission statement that that uh, is you always see in issue 1 of comics back then he gives the reasons for doing the comic and he even mentions about how submariner had trouble with his own book and oh and they they also have some um uh, pin up uh, photos of of well, I guess not pin up but headshots I guess of the uh the main crew the uh, main cast rather and Patrick Duffy gets a full page of his own uh just because you know he was the star he was the heartthrob they were hanging this television series on And there's a lot of things I could talk about with the origins of the show and that kind of thing. Uh, Stuff I picked up from reading the articles. But I'm just going to jump into the deep end here. And I'm just going to say it. This book was a lot of fun. Now, I have never, ever seen this TV show. I want to now. Um, I doubt I'm going to. Mainly because it's pretty expensive on DVD. It's one of those... um, on-demand DVD writable things that they do with the Warner Brothers Archives or whatever. Uh, I really like to. I'm not going to. It's it's pretty expensive. But um, f- from the articles in here, I get the feeling that it's right up my alley. It's kind of a mashup of Six Million Dollar Man or um, you know the Incredible Hulk uh, and an Aquaman. It's that lone hero going from place to place, helping people, righting wrongs, and um, then reading some articles where the With the the show creators, they were actually kind of looking at it more like an opportunity to do Star Trek type stories where you move from place to place and and find new people and have kind of a sci fi metaphor thing going on. And so, either way, uh, this sounds like the kind of thing that's basically uh, made for Ben, okay? And not just made for, you know, four year old Ben, who would have been the guy that, if they had shown it on my channels, would have, I think, Loved it. I don't remember ever watching it, um, in, in where, where I lived at that time, but um, it, it just I really enjoyed the comic here, and it feels like they've taken that high concept of you know, a man underwater who has a submarine with humans who are following him around and doing science. Uh, the, the, the submarine is called the um cetacean, I think is what it's called, and um. They take that and they they crank it up and say, you know what? Comic book, no budget for special effects. We can do whatever we want. Uh, Our budget is a page rate. We can do anything. And I imagine the budget on a show like this back then in in the 70s especially would have been huge. I mean, just doing incredible Hulk makeup was a big budget thing. So that's why they only did it a couple times per episode. And this would have been huge. They recycled so much stuff in $6 billion man just because they didn't want to go out and film him running all the time. So they always had him wearing beige, but in, in this you have to do underwater effects. You have to do these miniature effects. You'd have to do um, makeup effects on his hands because he has webbed fingers. They did contact effects on his eyes. So that it, it kind of looked like it was glowing when he would be underwater, that kind of thing. And, you, so you add all that and then you're you're filming in tanks of water i mean this is a huge budget thing uh but on the comic book they didn't have to worry about the budget and you know the budget might have been a reason for the cancellation of the show it only lasted 13 episodes but the comic itself i mean they're able to do anything that it features an underwater pirate uh in the first story uh who goes into battle against mark harris and the The pirate and his crew of men, they wear these strange looking uh, deep diving suits that allow them to go far deeper than, than what typically people can do when they're diving. And they have this huge battle underwater, and they're throwing each other, you know, and he's mixing up mud and getting them stuck in the mud, and there's rocks falling and trapping the submarines and all kinds of things like that. And then in the second story, it has a half-man, half-robot sailor. And when I say half-man, half-robot, I mean, he's split right down the middle. And he's formerly a, a whaler, and he has a steampunkish kind of android helmsman who is literally, you know... Uh, at the helm turning the wheel and uh, and this is on their solar powered sailing ship that's chasing down and ends up beaching a blue whale, the blue whale that killed his father and the blue whale is covered in ropes and harpoons and you get this kind of Backstory and this history and it's part Moby Dick and part Aquaman and part Jonah from the Bible. It could never have been done on TV in the '70s, and I just had a lot of fun reading it. I felt like I was reading a a, um, a more joyful Aquaman series, maybe uh, if Aquaman was an amnesiac who couldn't remember where he came from and who everyone you know in the scientific you know community that were dealing with him, they assumed he's from Atlantis. You know, all the human people assumed this. But um, it just felt like I was reading a fun Aquaman type of story. The kind of story, I mean, I like all kinds of stories, but I would love to read Aquaman stories like this. And and the Aquaman stories that I've read that are like this tend to be a little less serious. And the ones that I've read that are more serious are nothing like this. And so this just hit a sweet spot there and gave me a hero I really enjoyed reading about. And uh, like I said, I just had fun. And I just want to point out then that this very month that human fly issue I hated so much, you know, that human fly issue that was written by Bill Mantlo and penciled by Frank Robbins. Well, Bill Mantlo wrote both of these stories and the first one had pencils by, by Tom Sutton. Um, but the second one was drawn by, by Frank Robbins, the same team. And here the art is strong, in both of them, the stories are well paced. The first story gives us the TV origin along with that pirate ad- adventure, while the second story has Mark Harris, you know, swimming with dolphins and enjoying himself in the deep sea. And suddenly, then he's also you know faced with having to protect uh, blue whale from that Captain Ahabish cyborg, and and so now he's he's acting heroic and he's working with the dolphins to help. This blue whale to not die half beached on, you know, half out of the water, half in the water. It's just, it was just fun. It's just fun. That's what it comes down to. And it was fun in a way that Human Fly, I think, was trying to be, but that didn't quite get there for me. Uh, And I think part of it is because it was fun but it still took itself seriously and and gave a story that is meant to be emotional. I wasn't caught up in all the emotion of the story there, Uh, but it was meant to be emotional, especially that that second one where he's, you know, he's standing there. He is the last chance that that blue whale has. He's going to help that giant, giant creature that could never have been on TV and looked anywhere near realistic in 1977. Now, um, an interview I read in back issue magazine, uh, there's And that interview is something I'll reference in later trips back in time. But one of the studio executives mentioned he didn't even know there was a comic book series about Man from Atlantis until after both the comic book and the show were, were both canceled. And he wasn't happy when he found out because uh, he didn't want people uh, to think that Man from Atlantis was a kid show. And, uh, you know, I understand that that was and sometimes is a common conception of, of comic books. But I read this, and I enjoyed myself, and I found myself saying, you know, I would love to see the TV show. Uh One last thing, a little bit of comic book scholarship that I've not seen anyone mention in any materials that I've read about this comic. And I'm sure no one cares that I'm making this connection, and I, you know... I doubt that I'm going to get any credit for making this connection, mainly because no one is going to be mentioning this connection to give me the credit. But um, I did find uh, this little bit of information. It's kind of me putting two and two together. And even though math is hard, at least with two and two, I know that it's going to be four. And... Uh, one of the reasons Man from Atlantis was, was made as a comic is because they were looking for other licensed books to do because of the success of Star Wars. And I imagine that companies were coming to Marvel because of the success of Star Wars, and I think also Conan, maybe. But um, Man from Atlantis also has another connection that made sense for them to actually run with this, and that is that Hanna-Barbera, even though they weren't the company that was actually doing the production of Man from Atlantis, I they owned the company that was doing the production. And, and so basically, this is a live-action Hanna-Barbera product. And this is something new that I haven't seen anyone make this connection, but I noticed that Hanna-Barbera characters were popping up on Mike's Amazing World of uh, Comics, where I do a lot of my research to find out when things came out and that kind of thing. And I actually seeing them there, I was tempted, the completionist of me was, was tempted to go ahead and start picking those up too and and adding them into my Marvel license coverage. I'm not going to, I'm sticking with the sci-fi fantasy, but um, I was tempted. I came close anyway, man from Atlantis. uh, That would have made sense that they already had a relationship with Hanna Barbera. Hanna Barbera would have said, you know, Hey, what about this? We're also doing this TV show here. Would you be interested? And the rest would be history. That's the connective tissue anyway, that I have in my mind made. And That's also, I think, then the reason why in 1977, a comic book was produced and published and preserved to be sold to a comic collector and podcaster that allowed him to cleanse his palate from some... Fairly mediocre reading he's been doing. Uh, you know, that human fly issue just drags down everything else. But the Man from Atlantis pulls it back up. We are in positive land here. Um, you know, a lackluster, kind of mediocre Star Wars. And then we've got, you know, Godzilla that started out slow, but, you know, gave me a nice ending. And, you know, when you end well, that's what people remember. And I'm going to, you know, that, that high from Godzilla, this high from Man from Atlantis. Um, I'm going to remember that. So now I just need to go and figure out how to get my hands on those four TV movies and 13 episodes of the TV show on DVD. It's almost 60 bucks, (laughs) So I'm interested. But I'm not $60 interested. I I do have a birthday coming up. Maybe I'm not going to waste that birthday wish on man from atlantis i really would like to see this show though and maybe it's gonna end up being just terrible i don't know um so maybe i'm better off not seeing it maybe my imagination is going to have a better you know tv show than what uh what i actually would end up seeing but anyway uh time to move on to a a classic of sci-fi hg wells classic first men on the moon i'm going to read that next and then i'm going to talk about it in the next section. So here we go. Okay. So it's first men in the moon, not on the moon. I beg forgiveness from those of you who are in the know. Um, it is a classic of sci-fi and it's, the writer is HG Wells, who is a master and a father, honestly, of modern, modern science fiction. Um, So that said, uh, as I'm reading this Marvel Classics Comics uh, issue number 31, it's time for some confessions. First confession, I cheated. This book is Marvel. It is sci-fi, but it was not licensed. Uh, Not from what I can tell. Uh, H.G. Wells' name is all over the place, but there's no copyright indication uh, that it belongs to the estate of H.G. Wells or anything like that. In fact, published in 1901, I believe this would have been in the public domain as of 1977, late seventies is when there was a major shift in copyright law that did put some, a number of things in the public domain and 1901, uh, maybe even before that law might've been uh, early enough to put this story in public domain uh, even before the the late seventies. So anyway, um, didn't need to be licensed. That's all that to say. It didn't need to be licensed. Anyone could do with that story as they wanted. Um, But I came across this comic and I realized that it fell into the dates of the experiment. Although there are other Marvel classics comics, um, like, uh, Jules Verne's, um, master of the world. And, um, she, and HG Wells food of the gods, actually another HG Wells thing, um, that also fell in the dates of the experiment, but this is the one I chose. I, I wanted to go with this one. And so I just tucked it into the bag for this month because it was, it was sci-fi. It was an adaptation of a novel and it was a classic sci-fi novel that honestly um feeds into john carter and you know there's there's a a direct line connecting the dots between john carter and first men on the moon first men on the moon definitely inspired things in john carter and john carter then like you know we've talked about uh definitely inspired star wars i mean there's there's, there's a direct line connecting the dots from hul's first men on the moon to star Wars. So there's that as well. And, and besides that, I had seen the movie a few years back, um, which by the way, the movie featured great creature effects by the great Ray Harryhausen. Um, I haven't seen any of the newer adaptations, just that one, but I had seen the movie. Um, I had, I, have studied war of the worlds as, uh, the novel itself, but also, as the radio drama and even the, the, the classic movie, not the Steven Spielberg one, but the, the classic one. Um, I think it's George Pal who, who was doing that one, but, um, but the thing with War of the worlds, there, there is a Marvel classics comics adaptation of war of the worlds that, um, they did, but that I, and I had that one in my collection. That's something I could have just reached in and not had to seek out like, um, some of those other titles I was talking about earlier. Um, so anyway, that came before Star Wars. It came in that pocket of time that that had uh, w- with 2001 and and Logan's Run, but uh, you know, back then I wasn't ready to cheat yet when I was, you know, doing the early episodes and trying to figure out what I was going to put in the bags and stuff like that. I wasn't wasn't ready to cheat yet there. Um the other thing is I I had heard about this book. Uh it inspired C.S. Lewis to write Out of the Silent Planet, which was the first book in his sci-fi series, or a space trilogy, as they call it. And the second book in that series is one of my favorite novels of all time. Of all time. Paralandra. Seriously, it's a beautiful book about alien worlds, and innocence, and evil, and Out of the Silent Planet is a short read, and so usually if I'm in the mood to read Paralandra, I go ahead and read Out of the Silent Planet with it. I've read Out of the Silent Planet six, seven, eight times, maybe. I'm not not sure. It's one of those that I discovered in junior high uh, and and just never let go of it uh, between that and, and Paralandra uh, and so anyway I, I also really just wanted to read this I mean I, I found it at a convention when I first purchased it and I just hadn't gotten around to reading it and it was just there you know so I cheated uh, and I stuck it in I, I could have cheated with other things like I said and, and there are more cheats coming there are more cheats coming I don't remember what all of them are, but they're coming. Um, It's just this is is my first big cheat, I think. Second confession, I started reading this comic three... No, four times before I finally tonight got past the third page and kept on reading. And I only continued reading tonight because I had to read it if I wanted to finish this episode. I teased this issue, this comic, too many times... Not, not that you guys are like hanging on every word, um, you know. Oh, Ben teased this. I can't. I'm so excited that he's going to do First Man on the Moon. First Man on the Moon. First. Man. No, I know that's not happening. But um, I tease it too many times to go and edit those references out. It would take more we more work to find those places where I teased it uh, than it would take to just read the book. Just read it, you know. Um, and it, but it's a long book. It's it's another one of those like uh, Man from Atlantis where it has that. Not the saddle-stitched spine, but it actually has a a spine with words that can be printed along the the edge there. It says 52 full pages, no ads. And and that's true from a certain point of view, as long as you count the front cover as one of those 52 pages. Uh, The inside front cover easily gets counted into that fifty two count too, uh, because it actually has information about H G Wells. And the inside back cover has a pin up actually of H. G. Wells that um unlike the pin up of Patrick Duffy, I can't imagine that this H G Wells pin up was ever pinned up on any, you know, schoolgirls, you know, cork board or vanity mirror or whatever back in 1977 maybe maybe someone did but but doubtful anyway 52 pages no ads it only works if you count the cover as a page and you don't count the back cover as an ad because the back cover shows what two comics are coming this month in marvel classics comics Uh, first man on the moon Uh, so there's an ad for this book on the back of this book um it was joined by white fang that month and then it said coming soon for the next round Uh, Robin Hood and the the Prince and the Pauper and yes I did consider cheating on Robin Hood and including that but like I said I have more cheats coming and that's one I would have to track down and and purchase and I didn't feel like doing that anyway not for a cheat you know Uh, but all that to say uh, there's really 48 pages of story and (laughs) I had a hard time getting into it I'd start reading the first page the second page and I just think ah 46 more pages like this. Um, you know, and one of the things about this, though, I consider this kind of reading, sometimes I consider it sci fi homework. Uh, it's one of those things where I feel like you have to at least experience it once if you're interested in science fiction or if you're interested in the roots of stuff. And so this was a nice, you know, I can use the comic book, you know? I, I don't want to read the actual book. I'll read the comic book. Um, it still is difficult to, to get into it. So the other thing, though, you know, I I say it's three pages, but I look at this cover and I love the cover. And that's another one of those reasons why I was like, I want to do this. I want to do this because the cover, you know, they're on the moon. There's a landscape of the moon. There's the earth in the background, you know, and it's 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 a blood pumping sci fi podcast. Pulp cover with two English gentlemen punching spear wielding aliens, and I should get into this, right? I mean, that's that's what you would think, um, and and almost right. Uh, this adaptation of the story, it, it's similar to some of the movie adaptations that I did earlier in this experiment. Uh, dense pages full of many panels and many 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 words, uh, but when I finally forced myself tonight to really finish it i was finally able to get into the rhythm of the storytelling and i'm actually happy to say i'm glad i did It, it carried me along and i i enjoyed the story i really did it ended up being a fun read um it adapts each chapter of the book fairly quickly uh there's 25 chapters in these 48 pages so some pages or some chapters rather have three pages some pages or some chapters mean uh have uh just few as one page but the the artwork it just it complements the source material it it has the right tone the right mood and the right pacing um now i never heard of rudy messina although uh, apparently rudy did ink some john carter with john carter number six but uh, the credit list on mike's uh, amazing world of comics is is pretty short there's like 13 things on there um, the writer, though, Don McGregor, who is credited not just as writer, but as script and design. It's Archie Goodwin, editor-in-chief, David Kraft, editor, Don McGregor, script slash design, and then Rudy Messina, art, and Petra Goldberg, colorist. So Rudy, it looks like, did the penciling and the inking. But I almost wonder, did Don McGregor do like page layouts or something? ...to get that design credit. That was interesting. Now, Dom McGregor is a name I had heard of. I don't know if I've ever read anything that he's written... Uh, ...looking through his credits. I didn't really see anything uh, that rang any bells... Of, ...of series or books that I would read. But he did do a lot of Marvel Classics comics as well. And he does well with the task here. I can appreciate what it takes to turn a, a novel into a comic script. That can be daunting. And, you know, trying to take all these words... ...and turn them into pages of pictures... Um, and I can, uh, again, uh, here's confession number three. Uh, I wasn't planning on saying it, but I, I do remember reading at least one review of my work uh, from the script of George R. R. Martin's The Hedge Knight that I wrote, uh, saying that there was just too much text on the page. And so I, I can understand the problem. And not only can I understand the problem, even as I'm saying it is a problem here, I'm recognizing. Um, maybe not so much. Well, no, there's a couple pages in The Hedge Knight that I could definitely point to and say, "Yeah, there's too many words there." But um, uh, it's it's something that I recognize in my own writing that I know I have to work at. And so, anyway, beyond the script, the story, it's a simple story. Um, an independent English scientist creates a material called Caverite. His name is Caver, and he creates this material called Caverite, which has been used many, many, many times. In different places, as uh, you know, some sort of steampunky type of material that allows for you know space travel or flying ships or that kind of thing, or even f- like flying boat ships, not, not just spaceships. But um, he creates that, and it's a material that allows things to counter the effects of gravity and push away from gravitational pull. And he uses it then to go to the moon with his neighbor who is a playwright who is, he's narrating as if it is um, HG Wells. Um, I'm sorry. I just noticed on the cover of the magazine, um, you know, everywhere else it talks about HG Wells, but on the cover, it says the first man in the moon adapted from the classic novel by Jules Verne. Um, Whoops. Apparently, uh, Archie or David, uh, weren't doing their job when they were editing the the cover of this book. Interesting. Now Jules Verne—that's uh, understandable. He he wrote you know a book about going to the moon. Um, H.G. Wells and Jules Verne actually both wrote similar books about launching and going to the moon. But um, hmm, that's funny. Anyway, okay, I guess maybe it's more funny to me than it is to you, listener. But. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, they, where was I now? Totally threw my my train of thought. Oh, oh yeah, he's calling himself H.G. Wells. That's why I I caught myself there. Um, he's he's the acting as the narrator as H.G. Wells. He went along with Caver uh, to the moon, and they they get there. They discover a race of ant-like alien creatures kind of a hive mind and a caste system. And it's, it's an alien thing where it's not, uh, it's not people who look like people and act like people only a little bit different. And it's not aliens that look completely alien, but still act like people. It is aliens who act in an alien manner and have their own alien society and culture and communication. And anyway, um, they fight the creatures, they're captured by the creatures. Uh it's kind of that's getting into some pulpy kind of things here with the the way that they fight the creatures, and one they, they both escape, but they're they have to try and find their ship. And um the, the character, uh the, the playwright actually finds the ship and accidentally launches it to go back. And he's gonna gather some weapons. He's gonna go back and rescue his friend, Caver unfortunately uh the ship gets launched by a (laughs) i don't know whatever happens to this kid i don't know if they address it in the novel but there's this kid who as they're walking away from the beach where he's left the ship behind thinking no one will mess with it um this kid rides by he's like doing deliveries or something like that and they and they actually has a thought a thought cloud saying ah he'll leave it alone he won't touch it he won't do anything (laughs) and then as he's telling people his story, the spaceship lifts off. The kid's just gone. I don't know what happened to the kid. But anyway, uh, afterward they start receiving messages from the scientist who, uh, from Caver, who has learned to communicate with the aliens, the, uh, Selenites, I, I don't know how you're supposed to say it, but I think Selenites is how you're supposed to say it. And he's learned about how their culture and learned about their caste system and then learned about their society and, and learned how to communicate and everything like that. Um, and, and, you know, honestly, the story is one that just reeks of the time period. And that's in a, in a good way. It reeks of the time period with uh, um, the technology, um, the delight of scientific discovery, but then the questions of what to do with that scientific discovery, especially in light of the imperialist mindset of England at the time. And it gets into ideas of uh, the alien culture and mores and how alien intelligences might react to human culture and how uh humans might react or recoil from things that are so alien that the aliens just take you know for granted as just a part of society and a part of life um, but then that's kind of a counterpoint to how the aliens might react to human culture and and human uh habits and and human ideas and human uh well foibles you know <laughs> problems with with humans um it, again going back to the time period uh as they discover gold, the idea of british imperial imperialism goes from subtext to text as they they drunkenly discuss taking over the moon and stripping it of the valuable natural resources uh and it's an interesting concept it's portrayed well in the comic, I assume it's portrayed well in the source material, like I said I haven't read this novel, but I've seen the you know that movie from the the sixties uh but reading this. It's done well the the alien culture is shown to have kind of uh an immoral lifestyle of of uh, or culture even where they simply discard life when a life form is no longer of service to the community to the hive i I get some you know if if this wasn't nineteen o one um and if I was you know more of a historian because maybe nineteen o one was something where uh communism was. I, I don't know the history of communism when it when it started, and, and so I don't know if this is meant to be a uh, a dig at communism or to if it's meant to be you know kind of a metaphorical thing there. But I'm reminded of you know how communism is portrayed in in other literature that I've read, um, and so then when uh, that human then recoils in horror at that seeing the way that they treat life. The aliens are then horrified uh, by the human as he explains war and explains this is something that we do and why do we do it and they, they can't understand why they do it and they actually ask him for what is a positive that comes out of war he says that it prunes population you know and they're ter- they're mortified by this idea and I like that uh, this is that's science fiction that it makes you think it makes you ask questions. Um, and it makes you say, "Oh, maybe some of the stuff that I am taking as you know for granted as normal, should I? You know." And, and so it's, it does its job there. H.G. Wells, he's a master uh, for a reason. People still read him for a reason because there's still some valuable ideas in his writing. I don't agree with everything, you know, within uh, his his writing and within his his worldview, but. Um, i i i enjoyed reading this and enjoyed the the questions that it posed and i even enjoyed some of the answers the fights on the other hand they they reminded me of john carter um as they kill the selenites easily and they kill them out of practical necessity too um but then also i'm reminded of john carter as they're jumping in the moon's lower lower gravity and of course this reminds me of john carter i've been reading john carter for months now um and I'm reading it next after this. Uh, But like I said, there's definitely, you can connect dots directly from First Men in the Moon to John Carter, Warlord of Mars. I don't know if there was another step in between there for um, Egg Race Burroughs, but uh, there's definitely, there's a line, direct line from here to there. The creature design, by the way, in this book uh, is also really, really neat. It's suitably alien, kind of creepy, All in all, I enjoyed all 50 of the 52 full pages with no ads. So I may have started out feeling like homework. But in the end, it was a fun and it was a a pulpy and also a little bit thoughtful sci-fi story that uh, it hung on to its early science fiction imagination, its early uh, sci-fi imaginative roots. It held on to those even though uh, by the time this comic came out, we'd been to the moon a few times between you know when the original book was written and this comic came out. But the, I'm glad that they didn't try and uh, modernize it or um, try and, and and you know synthesize what we actually knew about the moon with what was happening in the story. Instead, you know, there's there's plant life, there's an atmosphere, and there's aliens. And I, I like it when you're able to hang on to that um, imagination, even when the imagination is completely and utterly wrong. We got up there, it was a dead, gray, lifeless place. But in my imagination, because of stories like this and stories that were inspired by this, in my imagination, the moon is an exciting and <laughs> dangerous place. So speaking of John Carter, though, that's where the next segment of this month's trip through time is going to take us. So we're going to head to that soon. And now I'm closing the book on the first men in the moon. John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue number nine is uh, written by Marv Wolfman penciled by Gil Kane uh, inked by Rudy Nebrez, Nebrez, Nebrez uh, I'm not sure lettered by Denise wool vol wool and colored by Janice Cohen and this issue is called Death Star trench run I mean I sorry I mean apocalypse at last <laughs> I'm not not Apocalypse Now, uh, which would be a little maybe too on point, but um, Apocalypse at last. And it's a big battle issue. At least that's what the front promises us, and that's what the inside gives us. It's it's a big battle. That's really what all of this is. Uh, after last issue, which really was just a quiet tale of a skiing double date gone horribly awry and ending with a stone snake turning Cantus Khan's girlfriend into Stone, Candace Khan being friend and colleague of, of John Carter. Uh, This issue starts off then in the middle of the uh, fleet of fighter jet type things, flying in formation, getting ready to attack something. I thought I missed an issue or something. I I didn't Uh, No, It just takes off right from the beginning here. Uh, We are jumping in right into the, well, they're, they're going to war. They're going to war. Uh, they're going to war against the Council of Five, which is led by the Great One. The Great One being someone who incorporates uh, features of, of five different races from Barsoom or Mars into his his physical being. So he has four arms, but they're different colors, and he has legs that are different colors, and um, he's kind of a, an amalgamation of all of the races of Mars. And... After what happened last issue, which was you know the assault on, on John Carter and his people, um, they're going into war, and Dejah Thoris knows where the Council of Five is hiding, where, they, where their fortress is, their kind of fortress city place. So if these, this fleet of fighter ships is heading in that way, led by John Carter, and the action is pretty straightforward, and I am. Just going to say, I think it borrows a lot from Star Wars. Uh, the fighter plane ships are approaching a target, which is a city fortress type of thing. Guns pop out of the cratery terrain below them and it makes uh, their attack run dangerous. But they get by. They uh, When they get to the fortress, they find out the city has shields. Um, electric magnetic field, actually, to be precise. And as John Carter says... My problem became how to get through this invisible field. You must remember, I am a man born to Earth before any great scientific achievements. Our science then was crude compared with the advancements I found on my later voyages home. Even with my paltry scientific knowledge, I realized the obvious. Their fire could not go through the field unless the field vanished, even for the briefest of moments. So in that, you know, two caption boxes, we get some Backstory, you know, John Carter is kind of an immortal warrior, and he's narrating this from some future point in time, and you know, we know he can't die because he's narrating, and he actually mentions a couple times that he can't die, and but here he's saying, you know, I had no idea what this technology was. What? What's a force field? What's a shield? Um, What? I I never watched any, you know, Star Trek because that was. Before my time, or after my time, rather. So anyway, uh, they do slip past the shields, though. Uh, timing it with the, the shots from the fortress's own guns. And they then run through the city, uh, fighting through the resistance of the, the, the warriors there. And they plant bombs. And then they escape in time for the fortress to explode. But the great one, the guy with all those features from the five races of Mars or whatever, he survives. And so here's where I, this is kind of a running theme for this uh, month, this uh, February 78 cover date month of my comic book time machine experiment. That uh, the, this idea of it's not just what happens in the story, but how the story is told and yes, the action here is straightforward, but it's the characters that give this story life. And we have three characters with internal struggles that play out while they deal with uh, the external struggles that they're trying to get through, you know, destroying the bad guy's base. And honestly, that's what keep this, keeps this alive for me. Um, this issue would have really been a letdown if it had not done this. As it is, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, first, we have Cantus Khan and his friend Grog, and we get some backstory about Grog. We—he was wounded saving Cantus Khan's life in battle, um, but the blow to the head he received makes it so he remembers very little about his life before that, and he has a much different personality than he had before. And Cantus Khan feels bad about this, uh, and there's a tight bond between them, a tight friendship. Uh, they've been in battle together now, and. And this is set up, you know, earlier in the series, this is set up when we had that bar scene where people were in the bar talking bad about John Carter because they thought he had kidnapped Dejah Thoris. And these two guys and their friendship has been building since back then. It was really kind of uh, fun when I realized, oh, it's it's these guys. And it's not just, oh, the one guy who lost his, his lady love. It's also this other guy, and th- that friendship meant more to me because I realized that it had been set up from earlier, and <laughs> then Kantus Khan now he totally hates their enemy because of what they did to his lady love, and he gets some good advice from Grog though that you know hate uh changes the way you fight it's good you know we have to kill, but hate changes the way that you fight, and it's that's kind of. Uh, it it plays out later in the issue. Let's let's just put it that way. Um, I'm reading this though, expecting that Grog is going to die. He's a friend. He has sacrificed for Cantus Khan. Cantus Khan um, appreciates him and feels bad. Uh, I'm expecting this to lead up to a, a dramatic sacrificial death scene for Grog. And, you know, then there'd be more hate building up in, in Kantis Khan. But instead, what we have is just kind of that follow through on what, what, uh, Grog said about hate. Uh, he's fighting a guy. He's, he decides he, I'm not going to use weapons. I'm going to beat him with my bare hands to, you know, uh, get revenge for what they did. And he is, grabs this guy and he's throttling him. He's going to kill him. He's, you know, this one for, and someone starts taking shots at him and he doesn't even look or as he, you know, he grabs his knife and spins and throws it and it throws it. And he looks too late to realize that he's just killed this woman and in battle. And he's in the middle of, you know, killing the man. Uh, but he now has killed that man's lady love. And he has just done the same thing that was done to him. And he staggers away in grief and time to get off the fortress before it's destroyed. And I like this. This is compelling, it's interesting, and uh, you know, John Carter in the narration kind of reveals that Cantus Khan can't die. He's not going to die until years later, which is another reason why I thought maybe Grog was going to die, because he doesn't say anything about Grog. But uh, he reveals that Cantus Khan would die later. He's going to die, you know, and and John Carter being kind of that immortal warrior, um, he doesn't like the fact that Kantis Khan actually gets to have his Valhalla before uh, the, the, and John Carter, actually I shouldn't say before uh, John Carter can have it. John Carter can never have it. He's, he's not going to die. But what what I like about this is that this takes a character who um, a lot of the, the drama is gone and it's kind of stripped away from his story because we kind of know where his story is going. Instead, we get a little bit of there's still something interesting here things that can happen to him and around him and and cause him to uh, change emotionally there's there's just some good drama here second we have Tar- tars tarkas who is going into battle and he's fighting well and he's he's he gets through the shields as well and he's going to he's going to plant the bombs but he in coming to this battle feels like he's betraying his people he's torn between his loyalty and friendship with john carter and his loyalty and responsibility to lead his people and he meets a young thark in the city uh while he's planting these bombs and this young man this young thark uh tells him that your people think you've abandoned them and he ends up having to kill the other one but even then he he continues just every scene that he's in he continues to grapple with his sense of loyalty versus his sense of uh, duty and identity. Um, and third, we have John Carter, who doesn't want Dejah Thoris to be there at all. Uh, he feels like she doesn't need to be there. He wants to protect her. He loves her. She's his lady love, uh, but he's her um, manly love. I don't know what you would do what the flip side of that phrase would be, but uh, she is not going to let him let her stay. She knows where the fortress is. She could probably give them directions, but she wants to be on the front lines because she stays with Thoris and she's pretty tough. And she's not going to give up this chance to get revenge on the people who held her and who hurt her. And uh, later on, she saves his life. So, you know him kind of uh his confrontation of this internal struggle, struggle allows her to come with him and the the way it plays out is just that she saves his life as someone's attacking him from behind or something like that and honestly it's the most unexciting of these interpersonal and introspectional conflicts for our protagonist but it's enough and i'm still riding on a lot of goodwill for John Carter Warlord of Mars and Marv Wolfman the writer uh, there's a lot of goodwill that i have for the storytelling that's gone before so this one which is not as interesting to me uh and if the if it was just aerial combat I'm, i'll am i be honest aerial combat in comics just doesn't <laughs> excite me at all except for one issue of gi joe that i remember had a really good dogfight in it um, and it really drew me in it was very interesting but generally speaking if you've got you know ships flying at each other for a couple pages in a comic i'm not going to find it all that interesting but the things that happen here as the battle unfolds the human drama kept me tuned in it's not as hard-hitting or as exciting as previous issues of john carter warlord of mars have been but it worked and i'm excited to find out what's going to happen next as the great one and john carter are finally 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 going to meet in battle i think Seems to be what they're leading toward. So uh, this is, you know, this concludes then the ninth chapter of the uh, Air Pirates of Mars. And yeah, I'm I am excited to, to finish that out. I'm feeling a little nervous though because I'm, you know, this is about one third of the way through uh, this omnibus. So we're our time with John Carter is almost done. So our time with John Carter for this particular issue in this particular episode is done and it's now time to uh, do the next segment. The next segment being the uh, Ben's bullpen bulletin. This bullpen bulletin is probably going to be kind of short. There's not a lot to cover. Um, I will say that the special effect of the day definitely goes to human fly. Uh, If nothing else, human fly Wins that for this episode, uh, and wins that for this this month really with the blap, uh, the b l a a h p p sound effect for a uh, mobster goon losing his cookies. As for the ads and stuff like that, Thor has the Dingling family again that he's dealing with, and uh, Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy are announced as another book that's upcoming by uh jack kirby and basically uh devil dinosaur i I like that series that's kind of a 2001 some of the crazy wacky 2001 stuff that he did in devil dinosaur he does that but it's more of an all ages um saturday morning cartoon type of of tone but what else is interesting in here is that uh, for Stan's soapbox, he's this is kind of fun. He announces uh, that they have just completed filming a live-action two-hour special TV movie of the Incredible Hulk, and he he actually talks about how he made a mistake because he in his previous or in a previous soapbox said that you know can you guess what pizzazz is and then it turns out that in that very issue they had an ad for it and so his little tease uh ended up being kind of (laughs) overshadowed by the actual ad and then he was trying to you know be mysterious and say what's pizzazz and then there's the answer right there but then he says and i'm gonna i'm gonna quote here but he says oh well what do you expect from a guy who could never remember whether his own character was called bruce banner or or Bob Banner. Hey, speaking of that, here's another nutty thing that could only happen in the wacky world of Marvel. As you know, Universal Studios just completed a live-action two-hour special TV movie of everybody's favorite Jolly Green Giant. In fact, The Incredible Hulk may be prime-timing it on the tube by the way, by the time you read these imperishable words. Anyway, what do you think they call the old Doc Banner? Bruce? Uh-uh. Bob? Forget it. They decided to name him Dave. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, that's... I think it's funny because I've heard people talk about this before in light of this conversation of, you know, David Banner. uh, But then it's okay because Stan Lee could never keep the name straight right here in Stan's soapbox. He's he's copping to it, man. He's copping to it. The other thing that happens on the bulletin, uh, the bullpen bulletin page from the actual issues of this month is that they do announce uh, the man from Atlantis comic, the 80 page $1 giant issue. Uh, Beyond that, there's really... You know, the ads are pretty typical. Um, There is one interesting one that is... Turn any wall into a giant TV screen. No electronic experience needed. High fidelity image. Enjoy an extraordinary new invention. A scientific marvel that turns any TV into a powerful projector. You Want to know the cost of this? You're thinking to yourself, "Oh, it's what's got to be thirty bucks, right?" No, it's three dollars postage paid for a complete set of plans. I am really, really curious about what in the world this is. It's from AstroTech uh, in Pensacony, New Jersey. Uh, I'm very curious, very, very curious about this. The other uh, interesting thing that I found here was there's a uh, advertisement full page ad for a place called superhero merch um it's the superhero shop but they've just changed their name to Heroes world and they offer these uh comic collections comic collectors set uh, set number one includes what if number one black panther number one red Sonia, number two peter parker number three And 2001, number one. Only $5 plus 50 cents postage and handling. And then uh, collector set number two features mint copies of Star Wars, number one. Eternals, number two. Logan's Run, number three. 2001, numbers three and four. And Peter Parker, number two. And I just see this and just think to myself, man, $5 plus 50 cents postage and handling. Uh, I would love to have been able to have gotten that set of books. Now, I probably wouldn't have appreciated Logan's run in 2001 as a child the way I would have appreciated, you know, at least the superhero ones and (laughs) Star Wars. But anyway, that kind of closes things out here. Uh, November, I'm sorry. Yeah, November 1977 uh, is, is behind us now. It is the past and it is time to return home. And we will be coming back to look at uh, the March 1978 cover dates and the December 1977 release date uh, issues. And, well, uh, I'm not going to peek ahead this time. Uh, I don't think there's anything special. I know that there'll be a Man of Atlantis number two. There'll be Human Fly number seven. There'll be Godzilla, whatever, number... 8 baby, John Carter World of Mars number 10, Star Wars. And I, I but I don't think there's any anything exciting or or unusual other than the excitedness that I have for John Carter World of Mars and the unusualness that you can find in Human Fly. I'm making up words now, so I think it's time for me to stop and head to bed. So I thank you for making this trip back in time with me and I thank you for um You know, honestly, just spending time with me and and letting me talk about comics. I would like to hear from you, though, about comics. Uh, This is, it's nice, you know, for me to be able to talk like this, but I'd I'd love for this to be more of a conversation. And so if you've been reading any of these, or if you have read in the past any of these, have any memories or thoughts that you'd like to to share with me about John Carter or Human Fly or or Star Wars, go ahead and and send that. Uh, Our email is... Feedback at comicbooktimemachine.com. So that ends this journey, and I look forward to taking more journeys with you in the future. And so until next time, Godspeed.